This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, October 9, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's podcast, we'll talk about an interesting ballot question that comes up from time to time in different states throughout the union. The question being, shall there be a constitutional convention? This November, that question will come up in Missouri. We'll talk with Dr. Robin Kuhlman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Central Missouri. But first, a couple of announcements. I found a great resource online from the League of Women Voters. It's called vote411.org. Check it out. They have a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues that you'll see on your ballot this November. Again, that address is vote411.org. You know, it's an unfortunate fact of politics in this country that money injects corruption into our government. Now, if you're as concerned about it as I am, then check out Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. The amendment states simply, corporations are not people. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. Dr. Robin Kuhlman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Central Missouri, joins us to talk about something I personally find very interesting about to take place right here in the state of Missouri. Now, Missouri will have a question on its ballot this November, the question being, quote, Shall there be a convention to revise and amend the Constitution, unquote? Now, I find it fascinating because here we have a chance to renew the state constitution, which hasn't been done since, I believe, 1944. Now, some background here. There are 44 states across the Union that have the ability to hold constitutional conventions, but the fact is that it's rarely done. In fact, we haven't seen a statewide constitutional convention anywhere in the U.S., since Rhode Island held their convention in 1986 after voting on it in 1984. And technically, Hawaii voted for a constitutional convention in 1996, but before the convention could convene, the Hawaiian Supreme Court overruled the vote on a technicality. So Dr. Kuhlman joins us now to discuss the constitutional conventions with a focus on a possible constitutional convention right here in Missouri. Dr. Kuhlman, thank you for joining us at Democracy on the Move, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Good. So uh, let's start off with the most basic question of all. What is a constitutional convention from a technical perspective? Okay, so a constitutional convention is a formal gathering to create a structure of government. Um, Generally, it's based on these liberal notions of democracy, ones that reflect uh, limited, you know, self-government, um, sorry, a limited self-governing body um, that's some sort of protective apparatus in which citizens can maintain some control over. At least that's the the overall um, uh, mm-hmm. axiom that we kind of work from in a liberal democracy. So this includes powers between branches of government, but also outlines how government can interact with citizens and how citizens can interact with government. 
mm-hmm. uh, what government can and cannot do as well, um, and also, also what it should do. Uh, one could kind of think of it as a playbook in, in a way, um, which outlines you know who can play, when they can play, what teams can what teams can do or not do depending on their role. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the most more you know um, important aspects is that it outlines the rights and privileges of citizens in which the governing body interacts with. And from a you know more academic perspective, uh, it's not only a rule book for the creation of, or the powers of and legal basis of the behaviors and limitations of institutions, it oftentimes embodies the values and expectations of society. So in the case of Missouri, you can look at the constitution and actually many of the state constitutions, you you would actually see how it describes the relationship between government and citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, The very first section, the very first article of the Missouri constitution uh, outlines what government can't do and what can do sort of bill of rights for citizens um, and so it's it's really that classical liberal relationship between government and citizens um, that exist within these constitutions uh, and this is you know manifests through that notion of equality and independence of human will mm-hmm. so government serves the idea is that government should serve at the will of the people with the assumption that while we have these different talents and interests, um, when government actually serves in that protective role, our characteristics should not differentiate how government treats us. Okay, well, um, that, that's um, that's pretty good because I'm going to get into that a little bit more later on because I'm, I've got some questions also about some of the specifics about that because you know you can be like issues based versus um, concept based in, in your constitution. But for the time being, though, constitution conventions rarely take place. Uh, rarely take place, as I mentioned before. From a political perspective, you know, what, in your opinion, could or should compel uh, Missourians to hold a constitution convention at this time? Okay, so um, there, I've kind of divided uh, in my brain. I'm dividing this up into two two separate questions Mm -hmm. what could spur a movement to rewrite the constitution and what should spur a movement to rewrite the constitution so there are a few items um that if one has been paying attention to missouri politics um that could spur movement to rewrite the missouri constitution is first a backlash due to a number of issues Mm -hmm. um the very first I can think of, of course, is backlash against the repackaging and selling of amendments that were recently approved by Missourians mm-hmm. um, that in one case ended up in its demise, and that would be Clean Missouri. Yeah. Um, and the other case um, that I'm thinking about, of course, would be the reluctance to um, move forward with the expansion of Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, uh, and of course, another issue is the you know, more recent um, Supreme Court ruling, the Dobbs Dobbs decision um, that had uh, effectively, you know, triggered, right, the the abortion ban in the state of Missouri, with the only exception being medical, you know, some sort of medical exception. Mm-hmm. Um, given that most Missourians do not agree with an outright ban on abortion, and they agree that there should be more exceptions, um, this would give the opportunity to codify it within the Missouri Constitution. Right. And so there, you know, there's that, you know, and, and you know, we, we know pub- what public opinion in the state of Missouri um, tells us is that that is that is something the pub the pub the public at this moment um, may want to uh, pursue if there is a constitutional convention 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, for this the second part of that um, question, the should, um, why should uh, a constitutional convention occur? Well, I would I would have to say due to its um, clunkiness of the the constitution itself, it, it is outdated. Um, there's a variety, there are a variety of amendments that uh, no longer apply um, and provisions that no longer apply, apply either. Uh, one being, uh, of course, defining marriage between a man and a woman. Um, that's still in it. There's uh, a ver- other um, regulations or regulatory uh, codifications mm-hmm. such as regulating bingo, horse racing, pool betting, or pooling wow. bets on horse ra- racing, outlawing stem cell research. Um, and of course, the you know some people have I've noticed have, have pointed to the the details, the, the lengthy details of medical marijuana, which uh, constitutes about 12 pages of the Missouri Constitution, and by my calculations, about seven or 10 percent of the Constitution itself, if you don't count the index. Um, so there were some some uh, there's some streamlining to do to yeah. update the Constitution. Um, and uh, of course, all of the latter issues that I discussed in the um, why could a Missouri Constitution ha- uh, a revision of the Missouri Constitution happen um, could easily fit into a should depending on who you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Now you mentioned the uh, the medical marijuana uh, amendment, and I noticed that too because I sat down to read the whole Constitution which is, is quite a read. It's not extremely long. I mean, it's nothing like a Stephen King novel or anything like that. But that medical marijuana thing is like, that thing goes on and on and on. I'm like, okay, this is this is ridiculous. You also mentioned Clean Missouri. And just to clarify that for everybody that doesn't know what Clean Missouri means, it was an attempt, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was an attempt to, um, to try and get influence of big money out of elections in Missouri. I don't know exactly what that amendment said, but uh, yeah. is that is that close to being right? Yeah, okay, so it, just a little bit of a, of a recap of Clean Missouri. In 2018, voters um, overwhelmingly voted and approved um, limitations on the amount of money lobbyists, for example, can spend on it, you know, at the state capitol with their legislators, um, as well as, you know, limitations on the amount of money that you can spend in a campaign. But the big, um, the bigger uh, issue, aside from just some of those ethical issues that can occur with um, money, right, and lobbying, uh, involved uh, re- the redistricting process. Um, and as it passed, it passed in 2018, um, and Missouri stood to be one of the, have one of the most unique redistricting systems in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, what what would make it unique during that period of time when it did pass um, was that there would be a partisan, a nonpartisan demographer that would draw out districts, creating competitive districts, which is one of the chief complaints of the redistricting process that we have now, mm-hmm. uh, because it doesn't necessarily help in terms of creating competitiveness. And really, you know, if you look at the ideological makeup of the Missouri State Legislature, so we're, we're talking about the state legislature with, with this redistricting process. Um, if you look at the ideological makeup of the state legislature, it doesn't necessarily reflect the ideolo- ideological makeup of the state of Missouri. Right. Um, and so that passed. Um, and there was a, uh, 
a an initiative by that or a referendum that was created by the state legislature to throw um, the question, not really the question back, but kind of repackaged the question. They, they were very, of course, concerned, um, and rightfully so as sitting representatives, um, that they may lose their seats because their districts would become competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have to just kind of point out that, you know, uh, during that time, I calculated how uncompetitive um, state legislative elections were during that time. Um, only so that only 3% of the seats for the Missouri State Legislature, the, the lower house, were actually competitive. 97% of the seats were uncompetitive. Wow. Um, and that illustrates that, you know, really there's uh, little little competition that can occur, which is quite questionable. And when you have, you know, of course, with redistricting, when you have that process um, politicized, it really questions whether or not our representatives are choosing us or whether or not we, you know, citizens are representatives. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, that was repackaged into, um, and, you know, we're, it, that a new amendment in 2020 was sent out to, to uh, Missourians to vote on, and which would essentially just um, get rid of that redistricting process. And it did. Um, that passed actually um, by a very, very slim margin. And um, I know a lot of civic leagues, such as the League of Women, Women's Voters, um, of course, were very upset for this to happen, yeah. um, for this to happen. But, uh, you know, I, I think that stung pretty hard um, for many who were looking forward to having a system that had a nonpartisan demographer draw those lines. Right. Well, it was right. it was a matter of timing, too, because the lines were going to get redrawn after the 2020 census. So it was critical that Clean Missouri would pass by that time. And it did. But it was but it was backed out, uh, essentially, in 2020. Yes. And it did by a, a large, um, a large margin, too, mm-hmm. with only I think it was only like 32 or 34 percent of the population's um, voting no on that. Yeah. Why is it? Is it just the way that it was worded or something like that that was intentionally confusing for people? Um, uh, the Clean Missouri? Yeah. Um, yeah. Initially? No, oh, I mean when it was backed out in, in oh, 2020. Actually, in 2020, the the language I thought was pretty clear mm-hmm. um, when it came to redistricting um, in that it, there would be a bipartisan commission that would redraw the lines for the House and the Senate. Um, but it, that didn't necessarily differentiate itself to what it had, what it was pre-Clean Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it also um, reduced um, the amount of money lobbyists can spend on state legislators to five dollars, yeah. right? So it was kind of repackaged as an ethics bill, um, which uh, essentially did lower the amount of money that could be spent, right, uh, as a lobbyist. Um, but reverted back to the old system. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was kind of confusing was, to a certain extent, um, there was a a uh, a couple of lines about what populations would be counted um, during the process uh, in determining the um, the population of of the districts, mm-hmm. um, and that was. Um, if I were to to look back at that, um, 
yeah. one of the changes was uh, yeah that that the and it's, this is in the constitution is that the line shall be drawn on the basis of one person one vote so some contention about that and worry about that um was part of the dialogue in 2020 um the concern was that you know um other populations migrant populations um children right p individuals who are um of uh of would well individuals who may have large families a lot of large families that do exist and say um you know the those more democratic areas tend to be racial minorities mm -hmm. and if their children for example aren't counted or if even um those who are not considered to be citizens aren't counted um it questions you know it quite you know it can it can a question where what who is actually being represented is it just individuals who vote is it just um adults um and that kind of was a blurry line and that was actually one of the uh a point contentions of debate for the 2020 um bipartisan commission okay well, I, I realize I kind of got off topic there, but I, that, that that clean Missouri thing really uh, fascinates me how that whole thing came about. So, but to get back to the Constitution itself and rewriting the Constitution, can you think of any reasons that we should not hold a constitutional convention? For example, could the convention be taken over by special interests? Or um, let's say they write a whole new constitution and it's going to gum up the courts with dozens, if not hundreds of challenges to the current laws and, and the constitution itself. You know, could it kick off yet another chapter in the epic culture war taking place across the nation? What are some reasons you can think of that, that we would not want to have a constitutional convention? Um, some of the, those um, items are um, clearly a concern uh, that you mentioned. Uh, of course, one, you know, the elephant in the room right now, and which has been for the past 10 years, um, a little over 10 years, of course, is the extreme political polarization that's occurred. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the cultural wars, um, the, the fan, the, you know, flames have been fanned. And um, unfortunately, we're in a period of time in which um, there's no room to agree to disagree and move forward and compromise, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately. And so that is, of course, an, a grave concern about having a constitutional convention during this period of time, because, you know, um, if you could, if you do have a constitutional convention with these types of um, of, of hard lines drawn on both sides of the aisle, um, you, it really questions whether or not anything can actually get done. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, I do want to point out is that the way in which the delegates are going to be chosen would be chosen for mm -hmm. a constitutional convention in Missouri is um, such that there there would be a more equal playing ground or playing field. Mm -hmm. um, Sixty of the delegates are going to be partisan delegates, but two from uh, each senatorial district of um, both parties. Mm -hmm. uh, and also there are going to be there would be 15 delegates. Um, that are chosen statewide um, at, through um, a, a bipartisan um, selection process. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning they, there wouldn't be any party attached to the names, their names on the ticket. Um, so that that you know that does 
uh, if anyone's concerned about any sort of um, issue regarding representation of the party or of the two-party system mm-hmm. um, that we have, uh, that wouldn't necessarily be the case. Um, but the concern, of course, is the selection process of those delegates by the parties. Um, you know, you may have one scenario in which uh, both parties may put up their non-office holding ideologues as delegates, mm-hmm. uh, and that could serve as sort of a patronage to party supporters that exist within the party. Right. Um, and today, of course, rightfully so, um, there may be a lot of worry uh, due to the undue influence of groups in a political process. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've seen during primaries, it's questionable as to how much influence party leaders really have these days in driving the selection of delegates or candidates uh, who run under their name, as we've seen in some primaries. Sometimes we see these ideological extreme individuals emerge without the backing of the political parties, because a lot of it has to do with, of course, the groups that are supporting those individuals. Um, So that could be a, a bit of a a quandary um, when we're thinking about a constitutional convention that oftentimes signifies compromise, yeah. right? Um, that's how we, we, you know, we're, we're taught, of course, you know, in American government, our basic American government courses, or that there were a series of compromises between the delegates at the constitutional convention for our federal constitution. Um, so it can go, you know, it can it can move both one both one or two directions, yeah. you know, with the system that is in place to select the individuals for the Missouri Constitution. Um, very, very, very uh, important concern, of course, to address. Yeah, and just to clarify too, that um, you mentioned that there's 68 uh, partisan delegates, and the way that that works is that there are 34. Uh, different uh, state senate districts in Missouri, and uh, the political parties in each district can nominate just one person to run uh, within that district for that uh, for that delegate position, and that person running cannot be a current office holder either. So it it actually is ideally um, not a politician, right? Um, yes. 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 Yeah. So they wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't be a politician. Um, necessarily serving, um, more than likely you would see um, the state party committee um, work out, you know, uh, who they would select uh, mm-hmm. based on some sort of patronage. Yeah. You know, yeah. Working party. Well, one of the things that in, in, um, in the past couple of weeks I've participated in an online Zoom meeting whose purpose is to promote the idea of a constitutional convention and from what I've been able to determine, talking to these people that are involved in this process, the main reason they give for people not wanting to hold a constitutional convention is what they call the fear factor. You know, it's like, yeah, the Constitution is really messed up, but we're afraid that a convention could mess it up even more. Um, so the fear factor gets to be pretty high. And I think even the DNC, and correct me if I'm wrong, the DNC, as well as I think the Kansas City Star newspaper, have come out against this, so mm-hmm. it's it's got it's a pretty high, pretty much an uphill battle to get this thing um, to get this thing passed. Primarily, just fear. Is is there anything else besides fear that you think is at play here? I, I think that's probably the primary reason. You know, there. If you think about even even if you think about this um, issue um, 
of abortion in the state of Missouri, um, you know, uh, there are a variety of people along that that spectrum in that issue. You know, there are individuals who, of course, a good number of individuals who uh, do not think it should be banned, but there should be some exceptions, right? So you have this, you know, the spectrum that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's like a game of chicken. Do you, do you want to um, risk, you know, perhaps losing that right altogether? Um, Mm-hmm. Or do you, or uh, you know, if you kind of want to flip that, do you, if you believe there should be at least some exceptions, um, or along that spectrum of exceptions, mm-hmm. um, uh, is you know, are you going to win as well? You know, the, you have to really. I think what people are doing is kind of this just cost-benefit analysis, where the costs or the risks are not, you know, necessarily worth the the yeah. the half the reward that they would expect or want in a process like this. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the the enemy that you know versus the one that you don't know sort of thing. Um, (laughs) So uh, we talked, uh, you talked a little bit about the polarization that's going on, and you also talked about the the, the selection process where we end up with these partisan delegates. And I like to kind of tie the two together because what I see happening here is that it's, I think it's most likely uh, that out of these 68 delegates, you're going to get half Republicans, half Democrats. And yeah, you might get some extremists in there too due to the, the reasons you cited. But there's really these 15 at-large seats that could really hold the key in some cases because, you know, I, I call it the fulcrum position because if it's, a, if it's going to be a tie, if it's something that, you know, Republicans are are uh, against because, you know, for political or, or for, you know, personal reasons or political reasons, Democrats cite the same reasons, but they're on the opposite side. And it's a, it's an even, even split. Now you got these 15 people in there. And in, in the midst of all this, we have basically what I would call a civil war taking place between uh, what I would think is extremists and traditionalists where the you know extremists appear to want to change our government make it more theocratic and, and, and promote business interests. And in my opinion, that kind of borders on fascism, but that's just my personal opinion. Whereas the traditionalists, and I would say like the classic conservatives and Democrats, uh, would want to recognize the same problems in our society, but gravitate toward a more measured traditional approach to solving the problems. And so you have this sort of polarization taking place, and there's no middle ground in this whole thing. And here stands those 15 delegates that are at large that might get stuck right in the middle of this thing. So is it a wise thing, in your opinion, to um, to go for this uh, constitutional convention in such a polarized environment? Well, yeah, I'd have to say that that's definitely one of the risks, you know, is going moving forward with a constitutional convention when uh, when nothing can be agreed upon. Um, you know, that's that's happened in the past in the state of Missouri, um, where, uh, let's see here, um, the Constitutional Convention of um, 1922, you know, um, didn't come out with, end up with a constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and they essentially just came out with the, um, you know, a bunch of amendments in which I think two thirds of them weren't uh, even passed. Mm-hmm. Um, 1845 ended up you know, not ratifying a, a constitution. Um, I'd have to look a little closer to see what the reasons, exactly the reasons why, uh, why not at that point. Uh, but, 
Yeah, that's one of the risks. And I think, uh, too, it, you know, uh, you know, this is a, a convention would take up a lot of time and resources mm-hmm. um, from the state. Um, and to go into this without willing um, participants or participants not willing to to compromise or mm-hmm. to make a good effort to streamline the Constitution uh, would be disingenuous, you know, um, uh, to mm-hmm. a, you know, to a, to a, a process that uh, takes up a lot of time and money. Mm-hmm. Um, what it would also do, too, of course, you know, you have to think about um, how long this, this process would take. Um, who's actually, too, going to be voting for these individuals during a special election? Normally, you know, individuals who turn out to vote during special elections tend to be high, you know, uh, highly interested in politics, but much more, but more poli- uh, partisan. Yeah. Um, and uh, then, you know, you're thinking about at that point, you know, uh, who would emerge victorious for those, quote unquote, nonpartisan um, delegates. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> also. You know, um, uh, one of the larger issues that could be that it would disrupt disrupt the legislative process when it comes to legislative session, Mm -hmm. right? Missouri's regular session. Um, The political environment has changed so dramatically. And since state legislatures have become the battlefield of the policy process, um, it could hamper a response to uh, what would be considered as non-controversial items. for uh, funding programs and so on. So it, it, I think that that's something to think about too, is how much would it disrupt the status quo that everyone believes is, um, is going well, mm-hmm. such as, you know, um, such as funding public education um, or, you know, all of those other non-controversial items that, that many don't necessarily uh, read about or hear about um, that moves through the le- legislative process during regular session. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you know, I think those are those are very um, important concerns. Um, and not only that, you know, uh, another concern, of course, would be let's say there is a constitutional convention and a constitution is rewritten significantly that has um, added a variety of items. Um, that's where I think you would see the influx of groups, um, interest groups, mm-hmm. um, uh, become involved in the process, uh, where, you know, they, of course, you know, have a role of quote unquote, educating the pros and cons of that, um, of, of those, of the constitution, yeah. you know, uh, which could be disingenuous and or it could be you know of course genuine like some civic organizations um uh do right. uh promote so you know yeah there there's a, can be quite complex when we're coming into um a to, you know coming into the decision to have a constitutional convention uh in a political environment that's so polarized can be um can be yeah yeah. Leave you with a lot to, to think about, you know, in terms of the process and what can happen. Yeah, I, I would think that, you know, the, the delegates would have to wear an army helmet, really, to the uh, <laughs> to Jefferson City, the, the state capital, um, because it would be, I would think there'd be so many people there. I mean, if you think about it, let's say you're a lobbyist and, and your job is to lobby 
uh, your, your normal state representatives and, and senators and such. And now here comes this constitutional convention. I can see these guys getting extremely active trying to lobby now these delegates because these delegates actually hold uh, a lot of power, you know, and you know, they're they're ideally they're normal citizens, right? They're not politicians and they're holding a lot of power here. They're holding the keys to the kingdom. I can see that uh, that could be, yeah, I mean, it really, uh, the flak jacket and army helmet to, <laughs> to, to go into the Capitol there. And, and you bring up a good point, too, in that there could be some real interference with the legislature because uh, the Missouri legislature dismisses around the May time frame, I believe, and second week of May. And then um, so that that would mean I would think if there's going to be a constitutional convention, they actually use the same facilities as the legislature. So that would give them the rest of the year to meet in Jefferson City and use all the facilities but uh, come the next January, they better be done, or at least in a, at a point where they are not conflicting with uh, the representatives that are there. They're going to be competing for the same resources. Yeah, um, and a lot of tired lobbyists. Yeah, and a lot of tired lobbyists. Wow, who cares about them, right? Um, <laughs> but the uh, there's this process of calling the convention, uh, electing the delegates, and it's also supposed to be an open environment where, you know, whatever reporters can come in there. It's supposed to be completely open to the public. And and finally, it gives the voters a final say on whether to ratify or reject amendments or the Constitution or, or the Constitution itself that they come up with. So there's a lot of checks and balances in here that, that you know, that, that should alleviate anybody's fear. If somebody says, hey, I'm afraid this that this Constitution is going to get even more messed up than it is, the only comeback I would have to say is, well, look, it's all going to be open. And you get a final say. The voters get a final say on whether or not they adopt this, any of the work that the delegates have done. So do you think that would be enough to alleviate any fears? I don't. Um, I really don't. Not mm-hmm. this day and age, um, especially when uh, you there, you know, when there's so much information and disinformation that exists out there for that people um, can, you know, hang on to. Um, I, I think it's it it's very um, accurate to say that there's um, a lot of reluctance and trust, you know, in mm-hmm. government today. Um, this applies to federal government, our institutions, but also uh, state government. It's kind of interesting. Um, people do tend to trust state government much more than they do um, federal government. Uh, but when it comes to uh, uh, something, you know, when it comes to uh, changing government individuals are more likely to just check off the no box on mm-hmm. on the ballot, um, especially if there's any question. All right, uh, I you know I, I really the difference today. You know I have to I would like to point out that there um, there is a substantial difference in the political environment that exists today than there was um, in 1944 45 when. Uh, there was the Missouri Constitutional Convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, back. You know, then if you if you look back at the um, aftermath of writing the Constitution and presenting it to the people, there were concerted efforts to by civic organizations to inform individuals um, or the citizens uh, what was in it, what was new, um, to kind of get them on board with this new Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also to just educate individuals about the process and 
um, and uh, just you know shine some light on the transparency of the process um, and elicit a little bit more you know elicit trust in right. uh, what they came out with that during the constitution today would be completely different in my view uh, you would predict a completely different environment and trying to sell this idea yeah yeah well there's another there's another approach i had and i mentioned it to that group the, the, the constitutional uh, constitutional convention group I said there's this there's this concept that uh, back when I was studying karate our sensei used to say if you're afraid to get wet then jump into the lake and uh, the modern interpretation of that might be uh, burn the whole thing down and I, and I get that from uh, from a lot of Republicans out there the, the extremist Republicans not the mainstream but the extremist Republicans, I guess what the president would call the MAGA extremist Republicans, um, they, you know, there's this attitude about like, the heck with it, let's burn this whole thing down. Wouldn't that be sort of an attraction to them then? I mean, even though there is some fear about it, like, hey, let's, you know, let's uh, let's jump into the lake or let's burn the whole thing down. Is that, is that an, an well, angle? I think, you know, um, I, I think you're, I, I, you know, uh, I think it's, that, that's interesting to think about. Um, my, my sense is that uh, we have a lot of issue-based voters. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, uh, if there is an issue is not adequately um, addressed in this new constitution, uh, then they may just burn that all down mm -hmm. and, not, not, and not be sold on the idea. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, it's an idea anyways. Um, it's, <laughs> um, so, but you did mention something here about issues-based voters, and that's that dovetails into another question I have because I'm just trying to figure out, you know, from your, from your previous description of what a constitutional convention is supposed to do, I have to ask, you know, is it, can it be issues-based or does it need to be more concept-based? And for example, can the constitution render a decision on the right to work issue or does it need to be more general? Like, you know, stating something like the rights of Missourians to organize and participate in a union shall not be abridged. If it gets too issues based, then it's more like a statute, I guess. But uh, I don't know. What's your, what's your sense on that? Um, I guess if you were going to sell this idea of a constitutional convention to all Missourians across the political aisle, um, and be able to sell it afterwards, after it's been written um, and agreed upon. Uh, you know, a concept that sticks is limited government, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the eyes of, of individuals who, who are, are in Missouri and, um, you know, have been uh, part of Missouri's political culture. Uh, but the problem is, is that, you know, uh, the political spectrums have different ideas to what limited government mm -hmm. is um, and then oftentimes uh, inconsistent uh, with their ideas of limited government. Um, for example, you can go back to that idea of abortion, all right, um, abortion uh, is, um, you know, definitely an issue over limited government, but that appeals to liberals, but some on the right, you know, believe that it's the prerogative of government to limit that, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if I were going to bank on a concept-based constitution for Missouri, it would be limited government. However, 
um, in the end, I see it as um, people, again, looking at those issues they most care about and have an effect on them, um, or they believe that have an effect on them. Sometimes we see that, you know, um, they don't, but they mm -hmm. believe they do. Uh, if 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 it's going to be concept based, it's probably going to start being watered down into issue based um, mm -hmm. uh, issue based things such as yeah right to work you know um, voting rights uh, um, abortion of course um, and a variety of other issues that have spanned our political spectrum over the past twenty years like yeah. all hot button issues yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> when I ask you your opinion about something, this is just your own personal opinion. Uh, if it were up to you, what, what sort of great ideas would you consider in this convention? You know, you mentioned like voting rights and things like that. But uh, do you have any personal favorites at all? Uh, you asked a, a wonderful question. Um, this was this, you know, this, this topic is, this has been so much fun for me to think about. Um you know, one of the things that I think is should be added and um, hasn't been discussed very very often is the addition um, of the provisions of Mona. I don't know if you're familiar with Mona. No, no. Or no. not. Mona is Missouri's non-discrimination act that has failed in uh, the, the failed in the Missouri state's um, legislature for the past twenty years. And what it seeks to do is to um, ensure that discrimination in, in work, um, among other areas, is not abridged by uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of interesting. We, we have, you know, um, in the Missouri Constitution that uh, that there are, you know, that that nobody should be discriminated against based on race, you know, class mm -hmm. and gender. Um, but many other constitutions in the United States also include sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm -hmm. um, so in, you know, in the state of Missouri, you know, somebody could be, um, you know, could, could lose their, their housing, right. And their job based on sexual identity and, yeah. and, or sorry, sexual orientation and identity. Um, and that would be something that I think could fit in nicely into the Missouri Constitution. Okay. Like I said, um, you know, yeah, I, you know, we are in a, a conservative state um, that might not, you know, stick. Um, but it, you know, I think it's a provision worth discourse if there were to be a, a constitutional convention. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other favorites? Uh, sure. Right. Um, you know, I, I would personally um, like to see uh, same day registration voting that could be done by statute, though. But if you, you know, if it's in the Missouri Constitution, same day voting and uh, registration um, in the early voting period and not during Election Day uh, would be wonderful uh, to have more people involved in the decision making process when we're selecting our representatives mm -hmm. and you know, when we're um, deciding a yes/no vote on uh, an initiative, right? Mm -hmm. Some states also have weekend early voting. Twenty-seven right. states do. Um, you know, we're quite restrictive in the state of Missouri when it comes to election administration laws, and 
uh, that would allow more people to enter into uh, the decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, how about ranked choice voting? Would that kind of be related to that at all? Sure, um, that would be a hard sell, you know. Yeah. Um, ranked choice voting um, it could possibly, you know, of course, change the dynamics at the state legislative level um, yeah. when it comes to candidates deciding and en to enter into the um, the race. Um, and of course, would give voters a lot more choices other than just that one person that might be running in their district. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we saw how that had an effect on Sarah Palin, right? In uh, in Alaska, mm -hmm. uh, some states are 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 moving to adopt, you know, ranked choice voting, uh, but there's been a lot of, you know, reluctance to do that as well. Yeah. 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 Well, Alaska also not only did rank, you mentioned Sarah Palin in Alaska, they not only did rank choice voting, but they did this sort of, um, don't they have like an open top four primary sort of thing as well? Yeah, the top four. Um, and I think Maine has the top five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or the, with the, the, it's kind of like this instant runoff. If you don't have 50% or more of the vote, they, you know, it's ranked choice. And then um, there's a, there's a runoff that, that occurs for the general election. Yeah, those have, have actually produced some pretty interesting or just runoff elections, or top two primaries, you know, um, state of Louisiana, California, and Washington have those. Yeah. Um, definitely produced some more uh, interesting uh, races. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, proponents and, you know, and, you know, political scientists um, do, do show that uh, we ended up end up getting more moderate candidates that can can emerge out of these types of races. Yeah, um, gives voters more choice, of course. Um, and you know, when we are casting a ballot, it is an expression of, pe of preference. Um, the first past the post um, system that we have with primaries in the general election um, kind of you know constrains the ability to express all of you know the express the spectrum of preferences that one has yeah. and with ranked choice voting you know um you have that ability to do so with maybe even your second second choice candidate winning and not your last choice candidate winning yeah well it, it comes down to um not voting for who you want but voting against who you don't want is, is yeah. really what happens yeah that's interesting how, you know, the, getting back to Alaska again, because it was a three-way race between uh, Nick Begich, I think his name was, and Sarah Palin and Mary Patola, or Peltola. I, think. I hope I didn't mess up her name too much there. But um, it, it was it was mischaracterized because two of those people are Republicans. Nick and, Mary, uh, Nick and Sarah are Republicans. And so what people like Tom Cotton do, do uh, he's the senator from Arkansas, just south of here, uh, he characterizes that by adding up all the uh, votes for both of the Republicans and saying, well, look at this. Republicans got 60 percent of the vote and a Democrat still won. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. you know, and he's just talking about the first round voting there. Um, but what he fails to mention is that, that Mary Peltola actually did better than the other two on the very first round. She got like 40 yeah. percent and then the rest was split between the other two. And uh, and what was significant in that situation is that there were people who uh, voted for Sarah Palin as their first choice 
And their second choice, most of the people, majority of them, their second choice uh, was Nick, was the other, um, was, oh, I'm sorry, take that back. Their their first choice was Nick, uh, a Republican, and and their second choice, most of them went for Sarah Palin, but a significant number of them went to Mary Peltola. And what that tells me is that a lot of the voters there are not really straight party line voters. They're the ones that are just voting for a um, for someone who makes sense, someone who they think can actually do good for them. So this this is actually it's an interesting thing because um, it really it really does open up the system, in my opinion, and and makes it a more democratic approach to politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, well we've hit uh, we've hit ranked choice voting, which is like one of my uh, one of my big ones as well. And um, what do you think about this? Electoral votes within a state are cast on the popular vote rather than all or none. In other words, let's say Missouri has 10 electoral votes and say 60% of the population vote for the Republicans and 40% vote for Democrats. I think that's pretty much the way it was with the presidential election last time. So that would mean that Missouri would send six Republican delegates to the, uh, to the electoral college and four Democrats. I mean, something like that is possible, right? This isn't controlled by the federal government or anything. The states no, it's can do not what they controlled. Want. Yeah, yeah. There are, there's, you know, that is one thing I like uh, that you brought that up because there are so many, so many, um, <laughs> so many areas we can think about in terms of revising the constitution, the way we run elections um, in the states or states run elections. Um, you know, uh, the national that that would that you know there are. Um, there's the state of Nebraska does the same thing where they, they split the votes based on the on the um, on the popular vote. Um, that can certainly happen in the state of Missouri. Uh, a while back, there was a move to um, have what's called the national popular vote, uh, and the national popular vote is kind of this um, is would be a it, it, at this point it's it's turned into this uh, compact between states where um, whoever wins the popular vote nationwide, um, that's where the delegates, or sorry, the electors would um, would cast their ballot towards. Um, so it's a little bit different than, a um, little bit different way of, of um, casting those ballots than um, just say the popular vote in the state of Missouri, it would be t- for the popular vote for, for the totality of, um, of, of the nation. Um, so I think there are 15 states at this moment that actually have this compact with one another. Um, and my understanding is, uh, is that it's, uh, it's still, still a movement. We saw some discussion of this actually years ago in the state of Missouri. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if that would be something, you know, citizens would, would want to revive. But, you know, it can it can go the other you know if we're talking about a constitutional convention it can certainly move the the other direction um, out of the hands of and that's one of the fears out of the hands of the public you know in terms of the decision making process decision making um, when it comes to uh, who our representatives are going to be you know uh, towards you know empowering the legislature yeah that that brings to mind a couple things because well first of all we actually uh, our very first podcast on this um uh, on this uh, show we're at i think this is the 101st podcast believe it or not 
the very first podcast was with a representative of the uh, national popular vote. And okay. we had a pretty interesting discussion about that. And they're still kind of stuck at that at that point of having, I think, yeah, 15 states. Uh, it amounts to about uh, 200 or close to 200, I think, electoral votes. But they have to get beyond 70 more in order to get to 270. But the, the problem I see with that is it kind of runs into this thing that uh, I'm sure you're very familiar with is the independent state legislature uh, theory <laughs> that's in front of the Supreme Court at this point. Where it basically says, you know, I mean, people are reading a lot into this, and I, I you know, I don't study this uh, full time, but my my take on this is that uh, ultimately it would allow the state legislature to uh, throw their delegates or throw their electoral delegates toward anyone they want. Forget about the forget about the voters said they just throw their delegates toward you know whoever they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of doesn't sit right in my stomach. But really, the national popular vote would would almost compel that. I can just see this being a big fight, especially here in Missouri. If the Missourians say, "Hey, we voted for Trump sixty forty, so we should send our delegates to you know our our electoral votes to to Trump," and but someone else says, "Well, he didn't win the popular vote, so we're going to take our ten uh, electorals and send them off to to Biden." Um, I mean, that would just <laughs> that would just trigger a war right here in Missouri, wouldn't yeah. it? No, I think that, and you know, that's the that's the beauty of discourse, you know, um, when it comes to these types of things, um, where you can point out, you know, those possible hiccups, you know, say during a constitutional convention, if I were to be a delegate that, you know, espouses the national popular vote versus, you know, um, a more proportional way to allocate those electoral college votes in the state that you present, um, you can certainly present that argument, and you just won me over that one. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Well, uh, one final thing, too, regarding uh, your wish list. How about initiatives and referendums? Uh, that's something that um, that's one thing I really like about Missouri. And I think Missouri is one of 26 states that does this in one form or another, has initiatives and referendums. And we've talked about them already. Um, would you look for protecting those, giving those more protection in the Constitution? Um, yeah, sure. You know, given that there's discourse in legislature, um, this last legislative session um, about increasing the percentage of signatures um, that is necessary to get something on the ballot, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's that's something that should be discussed if there were to be as possible, you know, constitutional convention um, where you could, you know, it it could you can actually lower the qualifications for getting. Um, an initiative on the ballot, uh, or keep it the same. You know, right now it's you know it's it's five percent of yeah. uh, the top of the ticket, the number you right, top of the ticket vote um, in the last election, which amounts, I believe, in let me think. I'm looking back at my one of my state government courses. In my head, it is about 177,000 yeah. signatures. A huge number. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that is, that is, you know, something that uh, not just a small group of citizens can do. Yeah. You know, it really depends on what you want out of a political system um, in terms of uh, who you, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of the ease in which citizens can introduce um, a ballot measure. Yeah. Um, that is quite, it's difficult. It's um, expensive. Yeah. Um, you need a lot of support to be able to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, 
as the population rises <laughs> or increases in the state, so do the number, you know, or at least as the population rises, the electorate does well. And so yeah. does the number of signatures one needs to gather um, to get it on the ballot. So, yeah, that would, can certainly be a, um, something to discuss, um, especially given, you know, given that there are attempts to make it even harder. Yeah. I was, I was just going to mention that, that there's a there's the Missouri legislature. Um, and I don't know, I, I haven't really been looking at other states, but I know the Missouri legislature is trying to make that process even more onerous to yes. to get all the signatures. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, and it's it's kind of this interesting idea. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's really a response from some members of the legislature to um, having some ballot measures passed that they did not want to pass. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of interesting because, you know, when we talk about Medicaid, Medicaid expansion um, and the refusal to, you know, uh, fit that expansion into the budget, the, the discourse about the reasons why um, some members did not want to do that was because uh, they thought that, you know, the voters didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. They didn't know that, you know, they didn't have enough information. Um, well, that they, they, they like deluded themselves into thinking that. <laughs> yeah. But go ahead. Well, it, it's kind of interesting because yeah. it, it's this movement away from, you know, having a more direct impact on government, right? Um, having limited government, um, having more of a say of government. It's this movement, movement away from that idea, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of Jeffersonian idea that's been espoused you know, by some members of the Republican Party for a long period of time. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's all, almost as if they're kind of moving towards, okay, no, we, we're, we're guardians of, you know, of the le of legislation. Um, and uh, it's best kept to, you know, uh, legislating is best, better kept to, to legislate towards and not the public. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 anti-democratic, I think, to to start, you know, shutting down, um, you know, um, initiatives and referendums because it, uh, like I say, it's a it's a participatory government, and that's what that's what democracy is, and you know, some of the some of the uh, rhetoric that you hear coming, especially if, you know on the Republican side, at least the, the classic Republican side, is you know less government, less government, you know more control over yourselves. And that, that seems to be going just the opposite direction these days. Um, so um, let me see, you have any final thoughts about this before we uh, start to wrap this up? Um, no, we, you know, we've hit a, um, we've hit a lot of, a lot of points here. I think we can probably talk about this for hours and hours. Oh yeah. yeah. Given the possibilities. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely, I feel that way with a lot of podcasts. When I talk to interesting <laughs> people, it's like, Gee, do you have another five hours to talk? Let's go and yeah. get some beer and talk this over. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, we could talk about reducing the size of the legislature or increasing the size of the legislature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are, you know, that's that's definitely something that could be on the table. Oh, I didn't um, think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, so if you want to shrink government, you know, that's the idea. If, if we can fit this concept of limited government, right, into uh, a Missouri constitutional convention, certainly you'd want to think about reducing the size of government, yeah. literally, you huh. know, such as the state legislature. Um, 
You know, if you can definitely, one can definitely pull in those fiscal conservatives, right? Mm -hmm. um, and others can definitely pull in those individuals who are concerned about moderating the legislature because the more interests that are exist in a geographic district, um, uh, the more, you know, uh, the less embedded in one interest, you know, a representative can be. Yeah. What do you think about this thing that, that multi-winter districts, that's where you actually have um, a, a district that say is, is, you have three, say, districts that kind of converge into one and people within those three districts can then vote for um, up to three representatives to represent all their districts. In other words, it sort of erases the lines of, of uh, gerrymandering in a way and, and um yeah, no. Do you think that's sort of a, a good idea? That's something that I think Fair Vote actually pushes that concept. Okay, so um, if I'm understanding correctly, you're talking about a multi-member at-large district. Yeah, kind of like that. I think the state of Washington actually does something like that in some of their more rural areas. But yeah, you would have let's say you know, yeah, like three districts that that basically uh, people within those three districts just vote for three people instead of just one, and that gives them an opportunity then to sort of erase the uh, effects of uh, gerrymandering? Um, sure. Uh, so, okay, so I know that for state legislatures, we have 10 states that have multi-member districts. Arizona is one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think, uh, I think New York is another. Um, and there are, there are variations between these states on, um, on how many members actually, actually serve, say, in a district. Mm -hmm. uh, research does show that uh, there are... Um, uh, more individuals who are uh, third parties that end up representing the area, representing um, in those states or serving as representatives in those states, um, mm -hmm. and women and minorities actually do too tend to um, end up winning elections more in those types of districts. Yeah. The only downfall of voting across districts um, that I know of um, from from research is that when you have at-large districts. Uh, what kind sometimes can occur is that you have you end up getting um, you know individuals who are or groups of racial minorities um, being left out of the process. And that is largely because you know when you're voting across districts, especially in citywide areas, uh, you tend to have white populations clustered together, and of course segregated um, segregated mm -hmm. minorities in cities, um, and they end up overwhelming that vote. Oh, uh, so that's one thing to think about if you're talking about, you know, changing the system into, say, an at-large multi-member system. Wow. Uh, okay. But multi-member districts, uh, you know, yeah, have, have, have definitely produced much more diverse legislatures and assemblies. Okay. I just had this idea that if we actually do pass this uh, a constitutional amendment thing, I mean, a, a constitutional convention thing, and if I were to become one of the delegates, I would want to have you as my advisor. Um, make me aware of, <laughs> of everything that I need to be aware of because I think I've learned quite a bit in this conversation. Um, before we go, I'd like to give a shout out to the website, sayyestodemocracy.org. It's all one word, sayyestodemocracy.org. That is the, uh, they advocate for a state, for a state constitutional convention and they're trying to get people to say yes on that ballot question. And there's a guy by the name of Winston Apple who is the uh, chief advisor for that organization and he's a very interesting person. He's actually run for office on a number of occasions for state-level office. I think he ran also for uh, Missouri's 6th Congressional District at one point. 
and ran for lieutenant governor. And um, now he's working with this group, and uh, it's a pretty nice group. They meet every, I think it's every Wednesday evening. So um, again, that's sayyestodemocracy.org for anybody that's interested. Okay, um, I guess that's it. Um, we've been talking with Dr. Robin Coleman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Central Missouri. Dr. Coleman, thank you very much for spending time with us today to help Missourians understand what it means to have a constitutional convention. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, well, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week.